0: As we like to say, when the Pentagon released its report on the unexplained sightings of flying objects, well, it wasn't our first UFO rodeo. Not for me, not for this show, and certainly not for the country. But some things had changed. The phrase unidentified flying object, UFO, was changed to unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP. The report said that the government couldn't identify most of the objects recorded by Navy pilots in some short videos. But apparently the DOD report is not the final word on UAP research. Not only will there be future reports, but some scientists want to try finding the UAPs themselves. They're already gearing up. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. In this our regular look at critical thinking, We ask if the government couldn't identify these bizarre objects, what makes UAPs worthy of scientific research? And can we get our minds off the collective mental UFO bandwagon and our attachment to alien spaceships to approach a study objectively? This episode is Skeptic Check Identifying UAPs.
0: When it was released in mid-2021, the first government UFO report to be made public in 50 years, now called a UAP report, well, it caused a stir. After all, 100 million Americans think Earth is being visited, and many have been waiting for years for the government to admit it has the evidence for that. But much of the emotion around the report was intense frustration. The government could only explain one, one, of the 144 incidents described by Navy pilots. Well, what are the rest? Some scientists don't want to throw their hands up and give a collective shrug. They want to embark on a scientific study of UAPs.
1: This episode is a conversation with two researchers who are making the case that UAPs are worthy of scientific study and how they propose we do it. But since the UFO-UAP story has roots going back 70 years or so, here's a refresher on the most recent events.
0: Science fiction seemed to have become reality when we learned at the end of 2017 that the government had a secret program to investigate UFOs. Now, it wasn't the first government UFO investigation. There had been several in the 1950s and 60s. And by the time the public heard about this most recent one, well, it had already ended five years earlier but the fact that the government did have a modern secret UFO program, blue metal gaskets.
1: Would an alien ship have a gasket, do you think, Seth?
0: Uh, somewhere, yes, they, they often do have. Gaskets are very, very frequently used in any machinery.
1: <laughs> well, warp speed ahead to 2020, and the Defense Department officially releases three leaked Navy videos made during training exercises. The videos are remarkable. They appear to show objects that rotate and zip through the sky. Some of the Navy pilots claim that these objects were maneuvering in ways that no known aircraft could. And it was that year that we learned about a new government program to investigate these objects, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. In
0: June of 2021, the UAP Task Force released its preliminary report on the mysterious objects seen by the military pilots. Now, of 144 sightings, the Pentagon was able to explain one, and that was a balloon. It could not identify the other 143 puzzling phenomena. So what were they? Aircraft, birds, domestic or foreign drones, camera artifacts, or
2: visitors from outer space?
1: Some scientists really want to know.
2: Hi, this is Jacob Harkmistra. I'm a senior research investigator at the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science.
3: Hello, I'm Ravi Koparabu. I'm a planetary scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center.
0: Together, they wrote an article in Scientific American in 2020 and an op-ed in the Washington Post in 2021, making the case that UAPs are legitimate subjects for scientific study. Dr. Hak Misra reminds us just how bizarre the behaviors of some objects in the Navy
2: videos were one of the most popular videos that gets discussed is uh, the, the video is from 2004 from the USS Nimitz. And you see an object uh, that appears to be at you know, 28,000 feet descending in less than a second uh, to, you know, sea level, which would require, you know, a pilot in such a craft would experience hundreds to maybe thousands of G's of force. Um, and it would require a tremendous amount of energy um, to, to do that. So, I mean, you know, these videos, I'm not going to, you know, necessarily say that these videos are the best examples we have of UAP, but certainly they're interesting examples, and they're the examples that got, you know, the the U.S. government to be to be more forthcoming about what uh, data has been collected. But certainly, there's things on the videos that, at least at, at first glance, lo- look like physics we don't understand.
0: Robbie, you know, there's a lot of discussion frequently, when these videos are discussed, about very fast motions, right, extreme accelerations. But you only know that these are fast motions if you know how far away whatever it is you're photographing is. Isn't that the case? I mean, you know, if a bug flies by my face, I think it's, you know, it's suffering 5,000 Gs if it sort of slows down. But, you know, that's because I don't know the distance.
3: Right. So that's entirely correct. Uh, In fact, if you you see the videos that were released you can see the altitude and also the range i believe of these um, potential objects i would say that the pilots probably know if there are uh, any bugs or anything at that point these are snippets of videos that were released and only few seconds of data and i cannot judge If it's a physical object that we know or something that they do not know, but it seems to be a real object.
1: I wonder if I could ask a question for all of you, and this includes Seth, who's an astronomer. Would it help all of us if we had more than just a snippet of a video? Like if this were a half an hour or 15 minutes, how would that change the story or would it not change the story?
3: So I would give an example with uh, any scientific data plot, if you see think about you know how the anthropogenic global warming is happening over the last several decades if you choose only a snippet of that curve then that is that is not real science that is cherry picking the data right and so and if if i don't have access to the remaining part of the you know curve i can't make any sense of what is actual global picture of the whole phenomena same thing
2: well if i could add to that i, I kind of like that that example and um, so another part with climate change is if you want to understand climate change you have to understand the methods and the and how the data was collected you have to understand that you know we looked at ice cores and and there was other measurements taken in Hawaii and you know all the other various things and so if you want to use data that the military has collected we have to know something about the cameras and something about their radar and how the instrument works and that's where it gets tricky because these things might be classified and they might be classified for a good reason that i might even want for my safety to remain classified but without knowledge of the instrument as well as the data it's hard to do much with the other thing of course in having longer clips as you
0: get more of the context. you know one of these three famous videos, the Tic Tac video, it shows what looks like a black peanut, right? And and nobody knows what it is. But one thing that would explain what you see in that video is just an aircraft, a commercial aircraft, ahead of the Navy jet by, say, 100 miles, right? And you're just looking up the tailpipes of the jet, so you get a peanut-looking shape. And if you had more video, maybe you would see this thing fly into or out of the field of view at a, you know, a transfer speed that was consistent with it being an aircraft. And without those additional minutes of video, you can't really do that.
1: But Seth, wouldn't the video, wouldn't the government have those longer bits of video and they would be able to determine whether or not they could identify those objects or not?
0: Yeah, they would. And I, but I think that uh, Jacob makes an, really an excellent point here. The military is not terribly incentivized to give you a whole bunch of information about these videos because that's giving you information about the capabilities of the F-18 Super Hornets. And, uh, you know, I'm with Jacob. Maybe it's better that we don't give out too much information about those.
1: Uh, Ravi and Jacob, I wonder if you could explain to us what it is that um, scientists or what you could bring to this discussion that hasn't already been addressed by previous studies?
2: Well, we still don't know what they are. So... There's a question to be had. It doesn't. It could be something really mundane, but there's still a question. If there's a bunch of commercial aircraft that are just not being picked up by radar, well, that seems really important. Actually, that seems like something you know other militaries could use against uh, the U.S. military. Uh, if it's misidentified clouds or birds. Um, that seems important for our pilots to be able to do a better job of identifying something that might otherwise seem, seem like a threat. So to me, that's a call for scientists to investigate. Now, ideally, yes, we'd have access to more of this data that was maybe already been collected. But I think, that, you know, there's reasons we just discussed. It's classified. And, and so we need to collect new data. We can't really insist on examining old cases
1: what do you mean by independent data collection? So you're talking about doing something other than just going over these videos again or, or, or going over the UAP task force summary. You mean collecting data on your own? Could you just spell that out for us? What, do you, what would that look like?
3: Collecting independent data that could be publicly shareable, that could be analyzed by several different independent groups so that we know this is the scientific process. This is literally what we do as scientists in our
0: everyday job. Well, just to follow up on that a little bit, you know, the pilots that uh, were exclaiming about these videos, the people that actually pilot the planes, said that they could see phenomena like this essentially every day. Now, that's pretty frequent, given that it was one part of the globe, right off the coast of Southern California. And if really there were things up there that were there every day, it doesn't sound to me like it would be a very difficult task to, uh, to run an experiment. What would the
1: experiment look like, Seth?
0: Well, look, you've got all those guys down on the ships. Right. That, that's where I would start and have them start making video or just report what they see. Sometimes they see these things with radar. Sometimes they don't. And that that's understandable. I mean, if it's, you know, two miles in front of the uh, Hornet, then, of course, they're going to see it with radar. Uh, if it's 200 miles or, say, 150 miles still above the horizon, you know, you know, the Hornet can see those guys. But the radar might not because it's not looking for anything that far away.
2: No, I think that's a, a great um a great point, Seth. Because one of the one of the problems with studying UAP, even from military's vantage point, and which was mentioned in the task force report, is there's a stigma even for pilots, even military pilots, to report uh, sightings of UAP. And so I think what's encouraging about this this being somewhat destigmatized and the fact that we're having this conversation and, and there's government interest in that is maybe these things are happening every day, all the time, and, and they're under-reporting due to the stigma.
3: If we want to do some consistent comparison we may not get the exact instrument that you know the military is using of course uh, but we should go to those spots where the pilots uh, reported use uh, similar uh, instruments. So, for example, infrared instrumental. But we need to know the wavelength range, where, uh, what wavelength range those instruments were operating in and what resolution and at what angle we should be observing. And maybe we should uh, have some radar equipment as well and some visual equipment, uh, recording equipment at the same time.
0: You, you gentlemen have mentioned the taboo that's been attached to this subject uh, for the last, well, I mean, if you go back to the late 40s, it's been a long time, 75 years or something on that order. Now, I, I kind of wonder, is there really a taboo? I, I get criticized all the time, you know, by whenever I'm skeptical about these things, uh, people say, well, you're just not willing to look at the data, right? That you have a built-in bias. You've already decided the answer without doing any experiment. Uh, is that a legitimate concern in your your view? So- I
3: I think it is, because I talked to some of the pilots who have uh, encountered this. Uh, They don't understand the taboo nature, some of them, uh, because it is real to them. It is their safety issue. It It is hard to report something, because immediately when we think about UFOs, people immediately switch back to aliens and flying saucers coming from other planets and all. So that association is creating a taboo there, a stigma that makes people think that, okay, it's some sort of an idea that is crazy ideas out there. So this is where we need to decouple these two ideas. UFOs are UFOs, okay? These are unidentified. Do not associate them with aliens or anything unless you have some solid, solid data and, you know, hypothesis that could be proven with the data.
1: That's why the government... That's the speculation. Is that is why the government changed the program? They want to move away from the stigma around UFO, so they've named their new program the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force for that reason, and so that pilots would not feel that stigma and they would feel free to come forward. And and Jacob, you the two of you have written about this, and the stigma and the taboo around studying this is what's kept scientists who would like to get involved from actually getting involved with some of these measurements that Ravi described.
2: There's not so much a stigma in that we, we have a hard time finding collaborators who want to work with us. But if we want to talk about UAP, it's very difficult for, for many of our collaborators even to focus on v- the very specific objects that fighter pilots and commercial pilots might be seeing without pulling in other aspects of pseudoscience and what's called ufology and and, you know, other things that that either have been you know already debunked or something like like uh, crop circles or something like out-of-body experiences that maybe there's a reason to study that for a totally different reason that has nothing to do with an object that a fire pilot sees in the sky there's too much that is kind of under this umbrella of ufology and so like yeah i think using uap is at least a, a good step toward decoupling it. But I mean, it's easy to see through that. You, you understand what they're doing. And and so it, to, to frame it in terms of a scientific question, when there's kind of all this other noise cluttering the question, it, it can be difficult to have productive conversations with scientists who are already skeptical. I just want to follow up very quickly,
0: Jacob, because... I, you know, you say, all right, there's some skepticism in, and most scientists may or a lot of scientists may look at this as woo-woo science, right, as it's uh, to use the technical term. And, but, you know, 50 years ago, people, even Carl Sagan, were very open to the possibility that there really was something here something worth studying. So as you know, there were four or five different government studies involving academics. Always academics were involved. And they came away saying, well, there's no new science here,
2: right? So, so what do you say to that? Well, I don't know that that's necessarily what they came away with. Um, so I looked at, you know, Carl Sagan was uh, part of organizing this uh, AAAS symposium, about UFOs. And so one of the things that he noted in in, uh, in his commentary about organizing the symposium was that um, a lot of, I believe he'd said older scientists, uh, gave him a lot of pushback for organizing this and they felt that it should not be talked about by academics and that they felt that it was irresponsible for the AAAS to be convening a symposium. So even when there were scientists willing to convene a symposium like that, it was in the context of at least some number of of voices expressing, you know, concern about this. And that, you know, James McDonald was one of the scientists who presented at this, uh, at this symposium. And I don't think he would consider it a solved question at all. He he presented several cases that he had uh, researched carefully that, you know, I don't think, he would say concluded, therefore, that we know what these UFOs are, but saying that there's clearly something here that, that needs further explanation, even after you sift through all the cases that have already been looked at.
3: The other thing is about the stigma is that we need to separate the social and cultural aspects of UFOs with the physical data and physical science. Okay, when when we talk to our colleagues, our scientist colleagues, when we talk to our other people, when we mention UFOs, immediately the cultural aspect and the sociological aspects come into our mind, and rather than sticking to what is the physical data, physical you know basis for understanding these uh, this phenomena, so I request my colleagues that please when you are thinking about this thing, separate away your cultural and, uh, and sociological bias about this phenomena. Um, Think about it as a physics problem. If it turns out all of them turn out to be balloons flying at thirty thousand feet for whatever reason, fine, I'll be fine with it. But let's just do science and let's not stigmatize this.
1: Coming up: How the scientific study of aerial phenomena proposed by our guests compares to an astronomer's project already underway to monitor the skies for alien visitation.
0: This is Skeptic Check identifying UAPs on Big Picture Science. Well, as we talk about how unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, might be studied, one prominent astronomer has taken the bull by the horns and created a program to do it. Professor Avi Loeb of the Harvard Astronomy Department has created the Galileo Project. He has funding, around $3 million, to run a small network of telescopes with the hope of making high-resolution photos of any objects they detect. But here's where some find this project controversial. He candidly admits that he's looking for evidence of alien craft in our airspace. In full disclosure, I'm a member of his advisory committee.
1: Dr. Loeb thinks we've already glimpsed an artifact of extraterrestrial construction. It was an object that astronomers detected in our solar system in 2017. It's called Oumuamua, and it is from another solar system. But the majority of astronomers think Oumuamua is a natural rock, most likely an asteroid. Professor Loeb, however, defends his hypothesis that it may be an artifact built by alien intelligence.
0: We continue our conversation with planetary scientist Ravi Koparapu at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and Jacob Hak Misra, SETI Institute astronomer and senior research investigator at the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science about how their proposal for a scientific study of the UAPs, like those visible in the Navy videos, differs in its goals from the Galileo Project, which is looking for actual alien craft, and how you go about studying such fast-moving, elusive objects.
1: Is there one piece of evidence, or is there an instrument, or is there a signature that if you picked it up, you would say that that looks like technology that we, we don't recognize?
0: Yeah. Is there something that would be a
2: smoking gun that couldn't be denied? I mean, this is the problem that SETI deals with when searching for, you know, extraterrestrial intelligence or extraterrestrial technology. Like, sure, there's a couple of smoking guns. If there is, you know, a narrow band radio signal beaming prime numbers and, you know, the periodic table of elements and something like that toward us, that would be pretty hard to imagine, A, you know, a star doing that by itself, even a neutron star. Um, I mean, just take that and put it on a, a spaceship on, on you know, in the Lagrange points or on the moon or th- that enter Earth atmosphere. Like, you know, you could make up something like that. That's that's really just so obvious that it probably will never happen because we've thought of it.
1: So, <laughs> so let me ask this question, because I know it's going to be in people's minds. I really want to ask the three of you, what do you think these objects are? And I know that you're all scientists and you're not supposed to. Speculate, but could you speculate?
2: I think they are objects that are worthy of study.
1: Okay, hedging your bets there. (laughs) Seth and Ravi, what do you gentlemen think?
0: Well, I, I, because, uh, you know, the intelligence agencies came back on these videos and said, well, as you mentioned, Molly, you know, we can't explain very many of them. In fact, only one of them out of 144. That's not a very good scorecard, I would say. And in fact, I'm beginning to worry about our defense capabilities when I heard that. But on the other hand, that might have been, you know, who knows why they they said that. But in fact, the people on the internet seemed to be better than the intelligence agencies because they were able to figure out all three of these videos and say, look, this could be very prosaic explanations. That isn't to say that that's what they are, but the fact that they could be explained with, you know, just ordinary things like jet aircraft and balloons and stuff like that. The fact that that would fit the data puts you in the position of saying, well, Occam's razor, you know, I'm not gonna go for the exotic explanation for this. I think that these are all prosaic phenomena. I think uh, I
3: cannot even conclude, even the ones that explain away whatever internet videos came up with, with the amount of snippets of data we have, you can deduce anything out of them. So I, I, I just refuse to speculate only because I do not have the data. I'm a scientist. I cannot look at only a part of the plot and say what the phenomena is about.
0: But at least one person, a fairly prestigious guy by the name of Evie Loeb, who was for six years the chair of the Harvard Astronomy Department, He thinks there may be something here worth pursuing, and he is pursuing it. He's trying to do exactly what you say, get more data. And uh, maybe we start with you, Jacob.
2: You have some idea of what uh, Avi Loeb is proposing to do uh, well, yeah, actually, I, uh, I attended some of the uh, Galileo project meetings today. Um, so as of, of yesterday, I talked to Avi, and so he invited uh, me on to, to the project as a research associate. So, you know, the one thing that I'll say, and again, I still need to learn more about this, but uh, my understanding is that, you know, many of the team members wouldn't disagree with me on this, is um it's not necessarily clear to me that there must be a link between UAP and studying what uh, you know. Ravi and I have written in about calling uh, non-terrestrial artifacts, and and so that's one of the things that that the Galileo project seems to be looking for is those kind of things. Oumuamua was one of the motivations for it. I'm not convinced that Oumuamua was a techno signature, but I think it's good to understand objects like that, we need to understand the the free-floating interstellar objects if we want to understand the technological ones that might be there. But I think that's what the Galileo Project seems to be studying, the non-terrestrial artifacts and the UAP. I'm not arguing personally that those must be linked, although I see that they could be linked in one particular scenario you know, let's search. There's money available, at least some, and maybe more. We should
1: search. Could one of you give us a a quick definition of what a technosignature is and also what non-terrestrial artifacts might be?
2: Okay, so a a technosignature is any sort of observable evidence of technology, and usually we mean extraterrestrial technology. And so a technosignature could be observing an exoplanet with a radio signal Telescope and we we receive a radio signal, narrowband stream of prime numbers. It could be looking at pollution in an extraterrestrial atmosphere that couldn't have been generated by anything other than industrial processes. So any signs or evidence of technology that we can observe is a techno signature. A non-terrestrial artifact is any sort of spacecraft, space probe that is not from Earth doesn't even have anything to do with UAP, but just the idea that we could look at, you know, the surface of the moon for a spacecraft that might have been there or there's stable orbits in space where, you know, small asteroids and maybe pieces of spacecraft would accumulate. Um, so that that's a search that has been done in, in very small amounts by other SETI researchers and, and, and could be done and should be done. And that seems to be part of what Galileo is doing. Okay, well, if I can entangle...
0: Uh, the Galileo Project a little bit here. I, I, I've been to a lot of meetings, I guess, over the past couple of months for this. And there are a couple of interests here uh, that derive from Avi Loeb's own research. To begin with, there was this paper about Muamua, and Jacob, you just mentioned that. You know, he didn't think uh, Muamua was just a, an asteroid from somebody else's solar system that wandered into ours. He thought maybe it was a piece of alien hardware. Although we should okay. say
1: that, that the majority of, of astronomers disagree with him. Yes. On the record, I should say that.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's true. Anyhow, so Avi is interested in uh, using instruments to pick up on these things that come to us from another solar system. But on the other hand, the astronomy community is already addressing that with telescopes like the Vera Rubin Observatory, telescopes that will look at the entire sky every 100 hours or thereabouts, and they will find these things. The interesting thing about the Galileo Project, of course, is the one where they're building instruments to see what's in our atmosphere, Uh, you know, to to get high resolution pictures of the UAPs. I mean, nothing would convince you more, I think, that they were interesting things than to get a, you know, high resolution picture and see that it looks like the Starship Enterprise. That would be, that would be phenomenal. So that's one of their big efforts. If we are starting with the conclusion that okay, let's try to prove that UAPs are extraterrestrial,
3: then yes, you will be disappointed. But if we start with an assumption that okay, let's find out what UAPs are, then yes, you will find something interesting. So let's not start with the conclusion. Is what I would say if people are trying to join Galileo Project.
1: Let's bring this back to the study of UAPs specifically. One of the things about these UAPs, at least the snippets that we see in these Navy videos, is that they go by really fast. So how do you go about studying something that is not only transient, meaning it's brief, but it may not repeat? How do you set up a study to observe those objects?
3: Okay, so I'll give an example of microlensing objects of planets. They are also transient events. We don't repeatedly see them again, Maybe I should probably give an ex- you know how it, this works, a microlensing uh, event of a planet. If you have a star, and then there's a background star with a planet uh, around it, and we are the observer, the light coming from the background star with the planet bends around the foreground star and comes to us, and that's how we find uh, an exoplanet with a microlensing technique. Okay, and once that event is done, that's done. We won't be able to find that planet system again. But then we found several of those kind of uh, examples. So we can find several stars with these kind of planets in the sky. So similar thing with uh, UAPs, right? So we find it's a transient object. It's gone. You may not find the same object again, but there might be something else of a class of object. You can go and study it. If we can do that, why not
0: do this? But does that just bring us back to what the pilots are saying, that they can see these things essentially every day? Um, So that's what the pilots said. If they have the
3: data, then, yeah, I mean, we should have a go and look at it. Maybe then we can classify them as classes of UAPs.
1: Why doesn't the study include putting high-res cameras on these aircraft? Because the instruments that these pilots are using are for specific phenomena, not to study UAPs. Why not just put some great cameras on on these aircraft? Yeah.
2: I was agreeing that we should, uh, you know, if you're doing this privately, like with Galileo or some other project, you know, put cameras on commercial planes. I think that would be great in addition to ground-based sensors. But, but who's, who's going to pay for that, uh, Jacob?
0: What, what, what is the interest of the CEO of United Airlines to put
2: cameras in the noses of his planes? Well, I mean, Avi Loeb got some investors, so clearly there's some people interested in this. I mean, so I think uh, Boeing was involved in the contract uh, that that the the Pentagon Defense Department had in studying UAP uh, some, some years ago. Um, so, you know, clearly Boeing has some people that are interested in it. So, um, you know, I don't know what motivates people who have the kind of money that they can throw around. You know, why does Jeff Bezos want to fly around in space? And why does, uh, you know, Elon Musk want to go to Mars? If, if someone wants to put their money into solving some uh, large, you know, high risk, unknown reward problem, I think the fact that there are. There there are phenomena that are being observed that a large number of them we don't understand is a reason for for at least some people to care about this. But
0: I agree. I think that people are very interested. But, you know, maybe there's another way to do this. Uh, we've heard from uh, Nick Pope, actually, who was connected with the British survey of these phenomena, and he said, well, the average size, and I don't know where... They get that number, but anyhow, the average size of these UFOs, as they were called at the time, in Great Britain was 30 meters. That's a, you know, 100 foot across. That's a big thing. You would easily see that in the photos made by satellites that are orbiting the earth. Why don't we just look at those data? So uh, existing
3: data uh, from the satellites could, should be, and should be looked at uh, to find anything anomalous. There is no, nothing stopping people uh, from doing that.
1: Ravi and Jacob, you talked about having a, um, you propose a interdisciplinary science committee, and I assume maybe it would be global as well. But could you give us an idea of what disciplines, what science disciplines you would include in this group?
2: Yeah. I mean, you would, you would want, um, you know, a lot of these things are, are, are misidentified airplanes. So you'd want aviation experts and you would, you would want people who are, uh, experts in, in, you know, military aviation and other aspects of the military, uh, meteorologists, you know, maybe, maybe have, you know, astronomer in there, but, you know, they seem to be like they're happening in the atmosphere. You know, I, th- I think, uh, engineers and, um, you know, maybe maybe some other just physicists, in, in just people who understand f- physics in general.
3: It's, it's important because these are happening in our Earth's atmosphere. It's an in, the reason why it isn't interdisciplinary is because these are flying objects. And, and then how do we know that? Because, well, if you want to study them, you need instruments. So you need instrumentalists. You need engineers uh, who know their instruments and who know the defects or, you know, the limits of the instruments so that we don't fool ourselves to detecting something that isn't there. Astronomers, I don't know. You know, <laughs> where, why? I mean, maybe they are trained physicists, so maybe their perspective is important and, uh, at that point. Uh, but having a, I'm, I'm wondering, where would a telescope be used to observe an Earth atmospheric phenomena? An astronomical telescope.
0: Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm not here. I'm not jumping in to defend astronomers. I don't think I have to do that. But
1: but you are <laughs> but, the astro- was, you are an astronomer, uh, so <laughs> but I am
0: an astronomer. Yeah.
1: Well, only because
0: perhaps of the historical connection between UFOs and astronomy. A lot of things that are seen in the sky, including the UFO that Jimmy Carter famously saw, have been ascribed to uh, astronomical phenomena. So maybe it's worth it. I mean, they at least understand most of them. Optics, right? And so I think that that's maybe a useful skill. So what is the big picture takeaway? How does a scientific study of UAPs, if started, wrap up? And what do our guests think would be the most interesting discovery for them scientifically and personally?
1: That's next. It's our regular look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check, identifying UAPs on Big Picture Science.
0: We've been talking to two scientists in this episode who are making the case that UAPs are worthy of scientific study, and they're proposing how we might do it. And now, in the last bit of our conversation, we'll address the question of how such a study might end. But first, we begin with their reaction to a recent item in the news about an object detected in our skies that moves in a confounding manner.
1: We were told by The New York Times in October of 2021 uh, a bit of news that I found actually quite startling, and that is that the Pentagon reported that China had caught them by surprise by testing a hypersonic missile. Now, the way that this missile moves, as it was described in this article, sounds a lot like some of these UAPs. It's described as a hypersonic missile that can change its course suddenly, zigzag, and move in ways that would render all current U.S. missile defenses obsolete. Now, no one in this article that I read or other articles connected this object to um, any UAP report, but I'm wondering if it's possible if um, the answer to some of the mystery about what these objects are is is right there in front of us.
3: Okay. So... We can get caught up in the most recent news and try to link with the ones that are relevant. But I'd like to remind that we know about these things for past 50, 60 years. This is not new. It's been there for 50, 60 years. And so if this is something that, you know, other nations are actually doing it, we should have seen
0: these things already. If they were doing this 50 years ago, they should have a spaceship by now. I would think that the last thing that the Chinese would want to do with our hypersonic missile is fly them into the field of view of our uh, Navy jets and, you know, the radar from
2: the ships. I mean, gosh, thanks for all the data, guys. <laughs> now, you know, I'll, I'll say one other thing to that. I don't, I don't disagree with anything that Ravi and, and Seth just said, but— um, so, you know, let's let's say what you know, Molly just kind of suggested is is right tentatively. Like all all the UAPs that have been observed since, you know, the 40s up to today, are various versions of secret military projects. Just entertaining that thought. I would really want to know that. And if the military is not letting us know that there's that kind of level of background warfare going on when we think that we're in a period of relative peace, I mean, you know, maybe that make, makes it a little more dangerous to engage in that sort of investigation. And so I'm not putting a high likelihood in this scenario being true. But I'm saying I would really care if that were the answer.
1: So I wonder if, Rob, Robert- Jacob could give us an example of a scientific phenomenon that was once taboo and in fact it because it was taboo it wasn't there wasn't the kind of study around it that there might have been um, but which was pursued anyway and which yielded results really important results to a branch of science.
2: Plate tectonics is, is a great example uh, of this so um, uh, Al- Alfred Bogner proposed this idea of continental drift And so he noticed that the shapes of the continents, if you move them around, it looks like they fit together like a puzzle. Uh, if you can look at the distribution of fossils on the shorelines of, of those continental jigsaw puzzles, and they line up, um, the rocks line up. And so he surmised like, hey, the continents must move around. There's, they drift. And, and, and this was, was laughed at. Uh, this, this was considered, you know, there was no explanatory mechanism at the time for why the continents would move. And so scientists resorted to these kind of wildly exotic theories to explain why there was common animals on different continents. And in that sense, that there's, there's a little bit of a parallel with UAP in that sense is that we're seeing something. Um, we may not have a great explanatory mechanism, and that's why I don't like to say what I think they are, because I, don't, I think that's the stage we're at. We're seeing something. We need to collect more data. We shouldn't dismiss it just because we don't have an explanatory mechanism, and we shouldn't necessarily prefer our favorite explanation until we've got better data to decide which way to go.
1: Well, how do you know when this study is over? And what if you can't identify these objects? Then what do you tell everybody, and do we just need to accept that some things can be explained? And I'm going to throw in, um, how do you report your findings? Would would you do peer-reviewed? Papers? Would there be a Journal of UAP?
3: I would say I would take some parts of that question. Uh, <laughs> how do we know where study ended? Well, it will not, because when we discovered the first exoplanet, it didn't end. The exoplanet feel right? Okay, we found a planet. That's it. Good. Now we know there are planets outside the solar system. We went on and found and discovered more and more planets. So we know because we we didn't end the study. We we found and discovered more and more of them, so that we can classify. We can see a trend. We can see what is uh, you know which kind of things are going on in which uh, you know box. That is what we need to do with the UAPs. We are not even there with even a proper classification or collection of data. So once we have that, then we can find out several of them and then classify them according to whatever they are. Uh, the, the other question was uh, about...
1: Making it public or a peer-reviewed journal. Peer-reviewed
3: journal. It depends upon what, which instrument or which kind of scientist found or discovered this anomalous behavior. Okay, if you, if aerospace scientists discovered this something or, you know, they found something interesting, then, well, yeah, maybe there's, there's an aerospace journal or something we need to uh, look for.
0: Can I ask, uh, just to bring this back to the hypothesis that there are actually alien craft visiting us because one in three Americans believe that's the case, right? This is not a fringe belief. Is it possible or is it even probable that an initiative like the Galileo Project, you know, they may build all these instruments and they may use them for years and years, and suppose they don't find anything that's clearly extraterrestrial. Personally, I don't think that that means that the belief that we're being visited is going to go away at all. You can't prove a negative. So uh, at that point, won't it just continue with the next Galileo project? Is there any end in sight here?
3: So I'll give an example with uh, a gravitational wave astronomy. They started with an instrument on the ground that was a some sensitivity and they did not find for over a decade. Then they upgraded their sensitivity or rebuild their instrument or upgraded their instrument. That's when they started uh, discovering these gravitational waves. The first one was in 2017, and then now they're finding uh, a lot of them almost every day. And so it depends upon the, how uh, involved we are in trying to find out this phenomenon.
1: Do you think that it's important to do a study like this of UAPs in order to demonstrate how science is done, but also? to maybe correct a kind of bias or to address a mistrust of science that may be circulating with the public right now.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's definitely one of the reasons I'm interested in this. And this kind of speaks to what, what Seth was saying earlier. You know, one, one in three Americans believes, you know, we're being visited by aliens. So, you know, as an astrobiologist, I, I never learned about UFOs in class. Right. You know, and, and then I, I meet friends who aren't scientists and they say, oh, you study aliens. What do you think about UFOs? And like the first few times that happens, you feel really off guard and you, you feel like, You're not doing your due diligence as a scientist. It it kind of makes me look not credible to other people to have no informed opinion about it. So I took it on myself to have an informed opinion. And I was surprised at the fraction of unexplained UFO, UAP cases. And that's why I'm still talking about it. I, I expected to have a very quick answer, just like with crop circles. Oh, here's what UFOs are, end of story. So to me, Uh, it would end at least in that sense if we don't find something we don't have what Ravi's describing where like it's just negative after negative and we explain everything bird weather balloon airplane and we get to you know half a percent unexplained cases and we're pretty sure that we're going to keep getting better at that well that would be good enough for me because then when somebody one of my friends asks me what do you think about UFOs now I have a great answer I'm not in it because I think they're aliens but other people do and I think there's there's just a little bit of duty involved in, in sort of that 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 public service
1: well so the final question to you both ravi and jacob is of all the possible conclusions about the nature of these objects that we might come to if these investigations begin uh what would what result would be the most scientifically important and personally exciting to you
3: because I do not want to speculate. Um, I would say anything that is well done and followed the scientific process, because I'll know that I'm excited for the right reasons, whatever the answer may be.
1: Even if it's all balloons, all balloons, you're fine with that. Uh,
3: Then that means if it turns out to be all balloons because of the scientific process, yes, I'll say, okay, great. I finally know what they
1: are. And Jacob, how about you?
2: I mean, I, I just want to know what they are. If they're balloons, they're balloons, then we've solved the problem. But I mean, I would be excited if there is anything new that, you know, sort of challenged the physics that we learned in school that forces us to learn more.
0: Ravi Koparapu, thanks so very much for joining us. And Jacob Huck-Nisra, thank you very much for being with us as well. Absolutely. Thank you,
3: Seth and Molly. It was wonderful.
1: Ravi Koparapu is a planetary scientist and an astrophysicist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Jacob Hak-Misra is a SETI astronomer and senior research investigator at the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. All right. Well, Seth, this brings us to the big picture here. And the question that we posed at the top of the show is whether UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, are worthy of scientific study. What's your take?
0: Well, I think I agree with our guests that, in fact, they're worthy of scientific study in a in a sense, that represents perhaps a new tack on the part of scientists who, in the past, might not have thought it was worthy
1: right and what what I'm hearing from Ravi and Jacob is that they want to collect data independently of what the Pentagon has, so they're not talking about reviewing those navy videos. They're not talking about ignoring them either, but they want to do independent data collection, I think Robbie said, on all wavelengths possible, and then pull together an interdisciplinary scientific crew to study this. Now, to be clear, they haven't done this yet. They're just proposing that scientists overcome the stigma of <laughs> UFOs and study these strange objects in the sky. Now, Seth, we should say that you have always been skeptical that these things that people are seeing are not very interesting. Of course, usually those are claims of UFOs, meaning people think they're seeing alien ships. Do you think the UAPs could end up being something pretty interesting? Well,
0: I mean, that's kind of what makes this story so compelling, Right. I think most of the people who read this story weren't worried about, oh, well, my gosh, these things are going to turn out to be, you know, commercial aircraft or balloons or whatever like that. They're interested because of the possibility that they could be alien craft. But you're right. I'm uh, still rather skeptical that they are. And a lot of it has to do with the fact uh, that there isn't much corroborating evidence, right, from satellites or other observatories or the space fence, the Space Fence is a radar installation. It's operated by the US Space Force. It's situated in the Pacific on an atoll in the Marshall Marshall Islands. It tracks two hundred thousand objects and it could see a marble in low Earth orbit, right? It's really <laughs> good. But it doesn't seem to see any UAPs.
1: So you think that it may not be very interesting at all what's happening. Well, I'm
0: sure it will be interesting, but I don't think it will be very interesting because it'll...
1: Degrees of of interesting, you think, not very. Exactly
0: it's i'm i'm not I'm not f- forcing that i'll be blown away, but put it this way: if they find something you know totally new, that would be worthwhile and and both of our guests expressed that point. They said that you know I just want to know what it is, and if it's a new atmospheric phenomenon, that's interesting too
1: then why are you involved in the Galileo project? I know that you're sitting on the advisory board of avi Loeb's project. And he is explicitly, while he, he does want to study UAPs, he also wants to look for alien artifacts, including alien ships. And you just said you're very skeptical that the alien ships are here. So why why are you involved in the Galileo Project?
0: Yeah, well, that's a good question, Lolly. But what happened was that I had written a Scientific American article in which I praised Avi Loeb's initiative uh, because he's trying to do very much what Ravi and Jacob suggested. Let's do an experiment. Let's collect data at all wavelengths and so forth. And he's planning to do that. And you may say that he's biased already as to what he expects to find. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But, you know, the, the measurements will, will rule the day.
1: What sort of advice do you give or what kind of perspective do you bring to the Galileo Project Advisory Board?
0: Well, uh, a couple of things. One is that I, you know, deal with this issue all the time because I am contacted by people who claim that they have some evidence. But the other thing is that I I do have a background in astronomy that may help, but also in radio and to some degree in optics. So all of that might be useful uh, in terms of the instrument design.
1: Well, we are not skeptical about the evidence regarding the talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff, who makes Big Picture Science possible. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
0: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Scholsky david and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the existence of intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Oh, and also a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
1: This episode of Big Picture Science, exploring the big questions around studying the mysterious UAPs that have been spotted in our skies, is part of our regular look at critical thinking. This episode is called Skeptic Check, Identifying UAPs. Skeptic Check is
3: brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimburger Family Foundation. At the Trimburger Family
2: Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth trimburger.org.